I love you. Do you hear God say that to you, brothers and sisters? Every week again, every time we come into worship, every time the scriptures are opened and every time the word is preached, how does God start talking to us? He says it every Sunday, twice, I love you, beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. You are a loved people. And it's not just in the sermons that God says that to you. He says it to us all the time. He says, I love you when he gives us our daily bread, when he gives us daily protection from accidents. He says, I love you as his providence governs the universe, as he makes the sun rise in the morning and set in the afternoon, as he paints the glorious colors on the sky and on the clouds on the horizon at the beginning and at the end of the day. He says, I love you when we see the birds migrating to and fro, when we hear the happy laughing and gurgling of a newborn baby, a little child, as we enjoy the blessing of family and, and friendship and fellowship, as we experience God answering our prayers and hearing our cries, God is saying to us over and over, I love you. And what are we supposed to do with that? How are we supposed to respond? Well, the way you're supposed to respond to any time that somebody says, I love you, you say, I love you back. And that's what we do. That's what we started off the worship service doing as we sang Psalm 116. I love the Lord. I love you, Lord. Because you've loved me first. That's what the scripture says. We love because he first loved us. And that's a miracle in itself. If you know who we are, if you know what we are by nature, the scripture says who we are by nature, that we lived in the world far from the Lord Jesus Christ, full of anger and, and full of conflict and full of hate, hating one another and being hated. That is the description of life outside of Christ. That's who we all are by nature. But the miracle of God, is that his love is poured into our hearts and that changes everything. That changes everything. So we can love him and we can love each other and we can love our neighbor. Now the psalmist has learned about God's love. The psalmist has learned about God's love through great trials. And in those trials, God's love has come into sharp focus. The psalmist was struggling. The psalmist was in pain. The psalmist was in fear of death. And the psalmist, the person that wrote the psalm, cried out to God for mercy. And God heard. That's how he shows his love. He's like a father who hears the cry of his beloved children. And when a father or a mother, a loving parent, hears their child in distress, every loving parent will stop what they're doing and will hear and will respond and will answer and will help. And that's who God is. He's never too busy for us. He's never 
telling us, just be quiet because I'm busy running the universe. That's not how he is. He is a God who hears. He is a God who listens. He is a God who inclines his ear. He is a God who answers. He is not a cold, impersonal, cosmic force. But he is a loving father who cares. And the psalmist learns that again in his tribulation and his distress. And the response of God to his cries just reinforces that that's what you have to do when you're in trouble. That it's worth doing when you're in trouble. That it's the only hope when you're in trouble. And that is to cry out to God, to the God who hears and to the God who answers. Now, this trial was bad. This trial, look at verse 3 there. And as you, if you have your Bible open, you'll, you'll understand the sermon better as I go through the text pretty closely here. In verse 3, he, he talks about what kind of a trial it was, that the snares of death encompassed him, the pangs of Sheol, the underworld, the place of the dead laid hold of me. This guy is close to death. He's suffering distress and anguish. Why? Because death is not the way things are supposed to be. Death is an enemy. It is the last enemy that will be destroyed at the great day of our Lord Jesus Christ's return. Death and everything that leads up to death, the brokenness of life and the breaking down of the mind and the breaking down of the body, disease, and everything that belongs to it is not the way things are supposed to be. We were made, we were created to live, not to die. And so there's great distress and anguish as death comes near. And so look at verse 4 there. Then I called on the name of the Lord. Now this is the difference between faith in the true God and faith in some fake God that you've made up. Notice that he calls on the Lord, and that's all in capital letters. The word in Hebrew is Yahweh. It is the covenant name of God, the God who loves, the God who relates to his people, the God who makes promises to his people, the God who lives in a relationship of mutual love and affection and commitment with his people. That's who the psalmist turns to. He turns to a personal God, the only God, the true God. He doesn't turn to a talisman, to an amulet, to a magic word. He's not trying to use God talk to try and control the powers of the universe to coordinate and align themselves so that his life gets better. No, he talks to his loving Father in heaven. And his loving Father in heaven happens to be at the same time the King of kings, the ruler, the sovereign Lord of creation who has everything under his power and control. So he's the one to go to. And he cries out to God, O oh Lord, I pray, deliver my soul. Now, when we see the word soul in our context, in our culture, with the kind of education we've received, we tend to think of the soul as distinct and separate from the body. That's not the way that the Old Testament uses the word soul. The Jews were very, very concrete in their language. And when they use the word soul in the Old Testament Hebrew, they mean the entire person. So you could say 
deliver me. That would be a, a legitimate translation here. You could say deliver my life. It's the whole person, not just some nebulous, abstract kind of spiritual part of the person. The psalmist isn't saying, Lord, well, forget my body because it's just the prison house of my soul anyway, and just waft me up into the heavens so that I can have some kind of a spiritual existence on the clouds with a golden heart forever. That's not what he's asking. He's saying, Lord, save my life. Make me better. Save me from dying. Now, in this suffering, in this trial, in this burden which is laid upon the psalmist in his tribulation, he experiences what we use the experience as human beings when we suffer. Pain and suffering tend to help us focus on the real things in life. It makes life real. And the truths of God come into sharp focus when we go through suffering. You talk to any brother or sister in Christ and you ask them how their suffering has affected their lives and they'll tell you that it brought into sharp focus who God is. Because when we suffer, when we come through suffering, then we know God in a way different than when we learn about him in, a, in the words of a textbook, a theology textbook. But we know him in our suffering. We experience who he is. And how has the psalmist experienced God to be? Look at verse 5 there in your Bible. Gracious is the Lord and righteous our God is merciful. Now look at those words. Gracious is me. That means that God gives us what we don't deserve. That's who God is. He loves to just ladle out and pour out blessings that we don't even deserve so that our cup overflows. And then he is merciful. And merciful means that he doesn't give us what we do deserve. That he doesn't give us punishment on our sins. He says, no, Jesus took care of that. I put all of your punishment for your sins on my son Jesus on the cross. He's gracious, he's merciful, and he's righteous. That means that in being gracious and in being merciful, he maintains justice. He gets rid of our sin, he gets rid of our guilt, not by just sweeping it under the rug, but he does it in a way which preserves righteousness and truth and justice. And then look at verse 6. Remember, these are the things that the, the psalmist is learning about God in his suffering. That God is gracious, he's righteous, he's merciful, and he preserves the simple. And he, when I was brought low, he saved me. Now that word simple, we, we tend to use it for people that aren't real educated or real smart. That's not what he's talking about here. Simple here is the simplicity of a child. He's saying, you know, Lord, I don't know what's going on. I have no idea why I'm going through this trial. I have no idea how to get out of it. I have no idea what your plan is for my life. I have no idea of any solution to offer. I'm just like a little child, and I need my heavenly Father to come and to help me. And I am low. I am brought low. And you know what a blessed thing it is to be brought low, brothers and sisters? 
The scripture says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and in due time he will exalt you. To be brought low is to come to understand that truth that every human being has to come to understand if they would live forever. And that is this, that I am not able, I am not able to save myself. I am not able to fix my life. I'm not able to solve my problems. I'm not able to pay for my sins and to set things right. I can't. And that truth presses us down, down, down into the dust. It humiliates us that we have no resources. We have no capacity for self-help. We have no ability to save ourselves. And when God uses affliction to press that truth down upon us, then glory to God, our eyes are opened to the only way out, and that is that He saved me, that He does it, that He is able, that He is willing, that He is a great Savior for people like us who are great sinners. And so knowing that the psalmist says, return on my soul to your rest. Remember, soul refers to the entire person. He's saying, return, O me, my life, all of who I am, return to your rest. Because the Lord has dealt bountifully with me. He's poured out his love so that it overflows, his grace, his righteousness, his mercy, his help, and his salvation. And even when I'm in distress, I can just rest in those good things. Like a little child lies in her mother's arms. And she's just at peace. She's fed and she's cared for. And she's not worried about anything because mom's holding me. So the believer lies safely in the everlasting arms, arms of a loving and saving God. And that reminds us when he says, return to your rest, it reminds us of what the Lord Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11. Now, the, the psalmist is in the Old Testament, and, and Jesus still has to come many hundreds of years in the future. And so the psalmist only has pictures of what will happen in the future in the ceremonies of the law, the sacrifices at the temple, which speak about a future offering of the Lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. So the psalmist doesn't have half the knowledge or even a quarter of the knowledge that we have about salvation and about the Lord Jesus. But the psalmist already just seeing the vague outlines of what Christ will come and do is already knowing that he can simply rest in God's grace. Now, if you have your Bible handy, turn to Matthew eleven twenty six, Because here the Lord Jesus sharpens that focus as he comes onto this earth and as he fulfills all of the Old Testament. In Matthew eleven twenty six, the Lord Jesus says this, and if you're not a believer and you're listening right now, the Lord Jesus speaks these words to you. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There is no greater relief for sinful men, women, and children than to realize that I can't fix my life, but Jesus can. 
And I can rest in who he is and what he has done. I can rest in God's grace in Jesus Christ. Now, it took some doing for the psalmist to figure this out. And I'm just going to jump ahead for a few verses here, if you have your Bible open still, to Matthew uh, to, to, uh, Psalm 116, verse 10. I'm going to pop ahead there to verse 10 right now. This is what happened when he was afflicted, when he was suffering, when he saw no way out. He says, I believed. I believed. That means I realized that my only hope was to put my faith in God because, because I'm, I'm afflicted here. And I'm looking around, and I see that all mankind are liars. So every human solution, every human uh, proposition, every human attempt to solve my problems is just lies. It doesn't work. It's useless. What a great place to come to. You know, sometimes, sometimes we have a, a bit of an overblown evaluation of the abilities of human beings to solve our problems. We live in a society which glorifies the ability of man to fix the world, to fix climate change, to fix hate, to fix bullying, to fix this, to fix violence. And it never works. Year in, year out. It's the same tired old story of things breaking down and all of the problems in the world, as we've been working on them for thousands of years as human beings, have not come any closer to being solved. And so when God brings great affliction into our lives and we're reduced to dire straits, then we look up at him and say, Lord, all I can do is put my trust in you. All I can do is believe that you have the solution, that you are the solution, and I reject everything that man will come up with, that man will propose for me. Why? Well, then, let's pop back now to verse 8. Because you have delivered. Because you are the one. You have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. There was the psalmist weeping and crying and could hardly see where he was going and falling over himself and stumbling and death was looming ahead. And there was God. What does the Bible say about God? He keeps count of your tossings. He knows when you can't sleep at night, when you're anxious, when you're tossing to and fro. He keeps your tears in a bottle. He knows the measure of your weeping. He knows and he can count and he can tell you how many tears have fallen from your eyes. He records them in his book. He knows your anguish. And he knows how to fix it. And so... The psalmist says in verse 9, I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. Now see again how concrete the salvation that the psalmist expects is. The psalmist doesn't say, well, you know, I'm suffering, but I have this nebulous idea that there's a good God and one day my spirit will waft up into the ether and I will be released from the pain of this present life. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living on this earth. I will live, and I will worship, and I will praise, and I will rejoice. 
Because God will save me. The psalmist understands salvation in terms of body and soul and heaven and earth, this earth. And God hears those prayers, brothers and sisters. God hears those prayers. Sometimes he hears prayers when we're in affliction by granting healing, by granting protection from persecutors, by granting relief from whatever's oppressing us. And sometimes he answers this prayer by taking us out of pain and suffering and into his presence. But that's not where it ends. That's not where it ends. The final answer to all of our prayers and longings begins when we walk upon this earth with our glorified bodies, when every tear is wiped from our eye, when heaven comes down and joins with the earth and all things are made new. And every day we're closer, one day closer, to that glorious day when the Lord Jesus will rip open the skies and he will descend with the voice of command and the sound of the trumpet to judge the living and the dead and to make all things new and to bring in on this earth a world where there's no sin and no pain and no death and no tears, but only love and joy and peace forever. That's the hope of the psalmist, and he didn't know anywhere near what we know about the work of God in Jesus Christ, but he holds on to that hope. Oh, as we're listening to what the psalmist has been through Young people, as you're here this afternoon to profess your faith, I don't think many of you have gone through great suffering as the psalmist has, perhaps some of you. Some of you can testify that God has saved you from great danger or great pain, great distress, and others perhaps not so much, not yet anyway. But what we need to understand is that every trial and every tribulation, every affliction, And every time there's that dynamic of of someone crying out to God and asking for help and deliverance, that's always a picture of the big story, the story of your life. What we see here in the psalm is a dynamic which plays out in your life from beginning to end. Today you stand before God and before his people. And today you proclaim to the world, I love the Lord. That's what you're going to say. Now, why? Why are you going to say that? Because even before you called on him, he heard you. From all eternity, he has loved you in Jesus Christ. From all eternity, he has known you by name. He formed you. He knit you together in your mother's womb. He brought you into this world. He placed you in a loving Christian family. He made you part of his people, his holy church, the congregation of washed and forgiven sinners. He did all of that when you didn't even know how to talk yet. He had already planned all of that before you even knew how to talk. And as you've grown up, you've come to know him. You've come to know who he is. You've come to know what he has done in your life. You've come to know yourself as well. You've come to know yourself as a sinner. You've come to understand as a young adult the horror of the old nature and the world of sin and brokenness. And you, the more you know yourself, 
the more you marvel at God's grace and mercy and love that he didn't leave you there. That he didn't leave you in a world of death and darkness and despair. But that he made you his child. So that you may walk before him in the land of the living. And so what are you supposed to do about that? You know, it's, it was interesting to hear this year and, and, and last year as well, one of the young people that came before consistory and when asked, why will you profess your faith? And the answer was very interesting. Well, it's just the logical thing to do. And that wasn't a cold and mathematical and, and sterile answer. It was the answer of our psalm here. If God is so good, and if God is so loving, i got to worship him. That just makes sense. And so that's what he does. That's what the psalmist does here in verse 12. He says, what shall I render? What shall I give to the Lord for all his benefits to me? Well, I'm going to worship him. I'm going to love him because he's loved me. And so what he describes here is lifting up the cup of salvation, calling on the name of the Lord, paying his vows in the presence of his people. He's describing a fellowship offering and a fellowship meal. The fellowship offering was an offering which they would go up, there would be the sacrifice, and then they would sit down and have a meal together in the presence of God. Kind of like the Lord's Supper, eating and drinking and celebrating God's goodness. And that's what the psalmist says he's going to do. I'm going to sit down at the table with God and his people. I'm going to drink from the cup that overflows with God's love. I'm going to feast on God's goodness and love. I'm going to worship and give thanks. That's what you want to do when God comes into your life with his love. You want to celebrate that love. You want to celebrate God's salvation in Christ. That's what you want to do, young people. You want to come to the table and you want to eat and drink the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. You want to celebrate God's love at the table of the Lord, at the feast, at the banquet of the kingdom of heaven. And says the psalmist, I will pay my vows. Look there in verse 14. Now the psalmist, as many believers did in the Old Testament, would make promises in distress. Lord, if you, if you save me from this distress, I will bring this and this offering. I will promise this and this. And now I'm going to keep those promises, says the psalmist. It's a personal trial that he went through, but it's a public testimony that he will bring that God is good, that God is loving, that God saves sinners, that God saves those who cry out and call upon him. And so it's in the presence of all his people. And that's what you're doing today. In the presence of God and the angels and the people of God, the church, you will say, I love the Lord. I commit my life as a living sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving to the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why would anyone do that? Because God cares. God cares about me. Look at verse 15 there. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. He sees this broken world. He sees the pain. He sees the anguish. He sees the fears. He sees the depression. He sees the loneliness. He sees the burden when a loved one 
their mind or their body is breaking down because of disease. He sees the cancer of sin destroying our bodies and our souls and our relationships and our world. And he sees the relentless and irreversible drive of sin towards the wages of sin, which is death. And it is not okay. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. You remember that the Lord Jesus wept at the grave of Lazarus because it is not okay. And so he did something about it. He died our death so that we can live his life. And that makes all the difference. And that changes our relationship to everything. We're no longer slaves of sin. Look what the psalmist confesses there in verse 16. I'm your servant. I'm your servant, the son of your maidservant. You have loosed my bonds. That's what every believer can say. I love the Lord. He set me free. He cares about my life. And he has set me free from slavery to sin. I am not an autonomous, self-made person. That's what the culture around us drives into people in schools and in, in the movies and in all of the media of our time, that you are autonomous and self-made, that you decide your life, that you realize your dreams. And the gospel says, no, I am not autonomous. I am not a self-made person. I belong body and soul to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He bought me with his precious blood. He owns me. And he has delivered me from all the power of the devil and all the power of sin. He has loosed my bonds. And the Bible says that if the Son has set you free, you are free indeed. That's something to celebrate. Free in Christ means free to say no to sin. And when sin and the old nature and the world come calling, that we can say, no, you are not my boss. I don't have to listen to you, sin. I am free from sin. I'm free from the oppression of the devil. I'm free to worship. I'm free to offer my life as a living sacrifice of thanksgiving. I'm free to come often and continually into the very presence of the Father and pour out my heart to him. And I know that he will hear and that he will answer. And so I bring a sacrifice of thanksgiving and that sacrifice of thanksgiving is me. It's my life. It's everything I am and everything I have. That's my promise. That's my vow. That's my commitment. God, take my life and let it be consecrated to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my love, my Lord. I pour at thy feet its treasure store. Take myself, and I will be ever, only, all for thee. That's, what, that's where the psalmist ends up. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. That's what you're starting to do today. That's the vow that you make today, sons and daughters of God. In the presence of God and all his people, in the courts of the house of the Lord, 
And that is the vow that all of you believers have made, sons and daughters of God. I love the Lord. He heard my cry even before a word was on my lips. He gave himself for me in Christ. And what can I do but give myself to him? Fully and unreservedly and unconditionally, here I am, my Lord, my God, my Savior, I bow the knee before you, Jesus, King of kings, Lord of lords. I confess with my mouth what I believe in my heart, that I am Christ's and Christ is mine. I love the Lord. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Amen.